The Canucks will try to keep their long shot playoff hopes alive as they finish a home and home with the Blues. It is the Canucks Hour. Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd and my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance, live at Rogers Arena, where the Canucks will host the St. Louis Blues in a rematch of Monday night's affair in St. Louis. Uh, of course, don't forget to check out Drancer's work covering the team at The Athletic as well. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca, and it is, it's full-on desperation time now, Drancer, and it's also scoreboard-watching time uh, for the Canucks, as I, I know the media chatted with Bruce Boudreaux about that a little bit earlier today after the Canucks finished their made, uh, morning skate, but it is, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to exaggerate the importance of every last game now for the Canucks, if they are going to try to keep these playoff hopes alive and realistic in any way for as long as possible. They need to win pretty much every night. You're, you're going in saying this is a must-win game now for the Canucks. Yeah, you are. And tonight is one of those unfortunate ones where if you're scoreboard watching, if you're interested in scoreboard watching, first of all, two of the teams you're trying to chase down in your own division play each other. So you're just rooting for the Meteor. <laughs> no, you're rooting for you're rooting for no three-point game. Regulation, finish. And we'll get to the Kings in a bit because I think there's something interesting going on there that you know, maybe I wasn't wise to before I checked uh, Dom Lecision's model. Can I get a little? Uh, can I get a little um, doorbell, Faber? Fa- Faber might be uh, cutting, cutting a clip. There, there we, we go. go. There, there we, we go. go. Thanks, Faber. Um, anyway, we'll get into that in a sec. But then you're relying on Buffalo to beat Winnipeg, and you're relying on the Seattle Kraken to to get business done against the Vegas Golden Knights. And if you're leaning on Buffalo and Seattle. You're in a dark spot. It's tough. And the other team they were leaning on last night was the Anaheim Ducks, who are playing some of the worst hockey in the NHL right now. And they blew a third-period lead to the Dallas Stars. Dallas wins 3-2 in that one. And, and as you said, so you're you know, you're know rooting for Anaheim last night. Tonight it's Buffalo and Seattle. And the tough thing is the team that is really front and center, if you're the Canucks and you're, you know, you're trying to figure out how you're going to stay alive in this race, is the Dallas Stars. And hey, the Canucks got that big win on the road in Dallas. That was massive for their chances. But as we talked about last week, Drancer, and earlier this week, you know, Dallas has a very, very favorable schedule. I know they're on the road right now, but they just beat Anaheim. They get Anaheim again tomorrow. So that's two road games, but no travel because you're staying in the same city. Uh, then on Saturday, they play San Jose. Again, short travel from Southern California to Northern California. Uh, and then on Sunday, it's the second half of a back-to-back in Seattle. So you might look at that one as a schedule loss. But, I mean, even if they pick up these next couple of games that they have on their schedule against Anaheim and against San Jose, you know, they're starting to really pay off all those games in hand that they've had for so long. And with the Canucks, you know, they play tonight against St. Louis. Uh, Then they have a few days off. They'll be watching. They play Vegas on Sunday. The state of the playoff race, depending on what Dallas in particular does, but some of the other teams as well, the state of the playoff race could look very, very, very different by the time the Canucks drop the puck with Vegas on Sunday. And certainly by the time, you know, we we get on the air on Monday than it does right now. It's a decisive few days here, both based on what the Canucks can do, but based on will Dallas stumble? Will Dallas open the door a little bit for the Canucks, for the Jets, uh, uh, you know, among the teams chasing them? Yeah, and, you know, one interesting thing to note is the Vancouver Canucks are favored tonight at home against the St. Louis Blues. So, you know, they have – I mean, Vegas expects them to win. 
Vegas thinks they're the team that should win. And they kind of have to focus on just taking care of business. They're going to play Ville Husso again, it looks like, based on the fact that Husso was first off at Blue's morning skate. Looks like Bortuzzo will will jump into the lineup and, and soak up all the personalized license plates. So, uh, you know, one change for the Blues. But, I, look, I thought the Blues looked like a really tough matchup for Vancouver the other night. I thought they were able to get out of their zone with ease, which we know is is one of the things that the Canucks can feed off of. If you struggle to break out, the Canucks can do damage. They're really good at punishing mistakes, particularly from teams trying to break the puck out. Blues do it well, really well. They did it really well against the Canucks on Monday. And then the Blues roll, you know, these depth lines. Like, I even thought that Topchenko... Nathan Walker, McEachern line had a lot of zone time and a lot of good shifts against the Canucks, and I can't say that any of Vancouver's bottom six lines did anything similar, uh, you know, including Vasily Podkolzin, who had his quietest game of the road trip in St. Louis on Monday. So, you know, this is a big test for the Canucks, and, and Vegas may favor them, but uh, I mean, I think this is a really dangerous game for a team that really needs these two points, particularly because, you know, <laughs> the Jets are facing soft competition. It's not just that they're facing Buffalo. They're facing Buffalo, who's playing their third game in four nights. And, you know, of course, the uh, Vegas Golden Knights play Seattle, and they've had three days rest. Um, you know, that's that's going to be a team that you'd expect to come out hungry. Yeah. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Seattle is a little bit fat after their biggest win of the season over the LA Kings. Now, let's talk about the LA Kings a little bit. Sure. The opening line on the LA Kings to beat the... Edmonton Oilers tonight was plus 238. <laughs> like the implied odds of that are, are three to one. Uh, you know, like the the idea that the Oilers are an overwhelming favorite against the LA Kings uh, tonight. I, I'm surprised by that. Like I'm surprised by how Vegas is handicapping this game as a lopsided one in the Oilers' favor. But... You know, I think when you look at where L.A. is and their recent form, and of course we all know what happened to them against the Kraken, um, you know, the the weight of injuries. I mean, we've been so focused on the injuries that the Vegas Golden Knights are dealing with and how that's left them vulnerable in the playoff chase that we've kind of ignored what's happening with the injured reserve for the, um, you know, Los Angeles Kings. They're down there. <laughs> they're down there three, uh, like, first choice right defenders, right? They're down Mikey Anderson, who was a second pair defenseman for them. Um, Dustin Brown's out. Andreas Athanasiu's out. Brendan Lemieux's out. Like, they are, you know, digging deep into their lineup. And if you go look at LeCision's model today, it actually contends that the LA Kings are more likely to miss the playoffs at this point. Now, granted, one in five chance right. of missing the playoffs. So they're still, still pretty safe. Still a heavy, heavy favorite to make it in. Then the Dallas Stars, who are at 85% playoff odds following their comeback victory over the Anaheim Ducks, and, and they face the Ducks again. And then, as you said, the Sharks and the Kraken this week. Dallas might just close the door on the wild card bid that not just the Canucks have, but also the Vegas Golden Knights, should they take care of business the rest of this week. Uh, still a big task, don't get me wrong, and, and Vancouver still plays them head-to-head once. So by no means am I am I calling that. I'm just saying... But they have a chance. That, that's the thing. The opportunity, opportunity is, yeah. is right here in front of them to really shut the door this week. And if they do, then your last out is going to be L.A. And so we sort of come to this moment in the playoff race where Boudreaux cast it as something where, you know, if, if we win 12 of 14... We'll probably make it. If we win 11 of 14, we'll probably probably make it. And that's true to some extent, but it's also insufficient. Right now, you are relying on 
Dallas and L.A. and or Edmonton, although I really don't think you're going to get it out of Edmonton. Uh, you know, they've survived some of the worst goaltending in hockey for two months. I'm not betting on that falling through, falling even further into the into the sea for them. You are relying on one of those teams to sag appreciably down the stretch, and you need to win all of those games, and that's why Vancouver's playoff chase is, you know, facing such long odds going into a pretty crucial two-game homestand against a pair of teams that, you know, they're only chasing the Vegas Golden Knights, but they need they need this win tonight against a pretty deep and a pretty good St. Louis team. I had written off the Kings as a, a, a chase-down target for Me the too. Canucks for a while. Like, even when we talked about, okay, let's look at the Edertown scoreboard tonight. Like, I wasn't <laughs> listing the Kings games because, no, they're too far ahead. They're done. Now, if Edmonton beats them tonight, Edmonton will move ahead in regulation. Edmonton will move ahead of them in terms of points percentage. They'll both have 81 points. Edmonton will have played one fewer game. But you still look at the math as it stands right now for the Kings. 81 points through 68, right? So you got to think they have 14 games remaining, you know, 15 points out of those 14 games. That gives them 96 points. That puts them in an extremely, extremely strong position, and that's just a hair over 500, right? So that kind of illustrates, even if you do start to think, okay, because of the injuries, because of some, you know, some of the uh, the opportunities the other teams have that you're chasing to really put things away this week, is Edmonton a more realistic target? But I mean, you're talking about the Canucks going 12 and two, and Edmonton going, you know, eight and six, and and being right there with you, right? So it's it's the the gap between what the two teams have to do in that situation is so, so significant. Now, the Canucks do have one game against L.A. towards the end of the season. I think it's the second last game of the season, so who knows? But it's, man, even if you're looking at uh, at L.A., it's there, there are no easy paths. There are no obvious paths left for the Canucks, again, pending on what Dallas does this week. If Dallas falls flat on their face, hey, you never know. Maybe something opens up, but then you still got to account for Vegas. You still got to account for Winnipeg. And one of the things that I'm really looking for from the Canucks tonight, and, and Mike and Burnaby texted, my spin on the Dallas Stars is that they have to play at a high level for more games because they're making up those games in hand. Is there a chance they could run out of steam? There's a chance. There's there's always a chance of something like that. But, I mean, don't forget that the Canucks have been playing kind of desperation. We absolutely have to win all of these games for, for months and months now, right? Like since Bruce Boudreaux took over, they've made, they've known they've had to play at an extremely high level just to give themselves an outside, outside shot at making the playoffs. And I think that stress and that the, the realization and the recognition that you are such a, lo- a long shot, that, that takes a toll eventually, right? And when I look at tonight's game, I'm really curious to see what kind of level of desperation we see from the Canucks. And, and we'll get to some of the, the tactical and X's and O's stuff, but just from a big picture point of view, you know, the Canucks are basically in the position where they should be treating every game now like an elimination game, right? Like every game, their season is on the line. If you're talking about going 12-2 and two in th- through 14 games to give yourself a shot at the playoffs, that's the mentality you have to have. But at the same time, how much do they have left in the tank to bring that kind of energy, to bring that kind of desperation game after game after game? Because I don't think that's easy to do. So I-, I get what you're saying, Mike and Burnaby. You know, could the Dallas Stars kind of crumble under some of that pressure as well if they're playing a lot of games in quick succession and feeling like, you know, they have to bring that energy, but the Canucks are right there too. The Canucks are right there too, and they've been doing it for a long time. And at a certain point, can you bring that desperation game in, game out down the stretch here? It's not easy to do. Also, don't forget that the Dallas Stars have wiggle, right? Like the yes. Dallas Stars don't have to do that well, even. 
You know, if they if they go 500 the rest of the way, they're at 94 points. 500's not even good. 22 teams in the NHL play 500 yeah. hockey. Like, can the Dallas Stars play as well as the San Jose Sharks have this season over this? You know, because if, if they do, they're probably a playoff team. And if they do two points better, then they're at the level where almost no one misses. And if they do three points better, they're at a level in which no one has ever missed before. Meanwhile, the Canucks, you know, look, just look at their maximum, right? This is the easiest way to do the math. Look at their maximum point total. It's 101 points, right? You can you can only afford three losses. If you if you end up at ninety five or below, you're probably missing. You're done. You're probably missing. So you can only afford three losses here, and that makes the stakes of every game. I mean, St. Louis, Dallas. Oh, sorry, St. Louis, Vegas, Vegas, Arizona on the second leg of a back to back. Dallas, right? You you need to get through that stretch with no losses, none, zero, and you know that ain't easy. That's certainly not easy considering. That for Vegas, they're in the same boat. They're in the exact same boat as Vancouver with a three-point lead. And frankly, a better, deeper team. Although they don't have Demko, and that's a great equalizer in the matchup between those two. And St. Louis, you know, this game doesn't... This game's not life or death for them. And they're probably a little bit fatter, a little bit, you know, more satiated this matchup than they were the last time these teams played when when St. Louis had just been bludgeoned um, over the weekend. Uh, maybe that changes the dynamic a little bit. Uh, I'm sure, you know, the Canucks are kind of hoping it does. But the, the interesting thing with St. Louis, though, and it, obviously it, the stakes are far, far lesser for them than the Canucks, but they have actually, just in points, they still have two games in hand on Nashville, but they have fallen below Nashville in the Central Division, which would put them in a wild card spot, right? Which they you don't want. They, they, you don't want that. You, you don't, don't want that. You don't want to play Calgary. No, you don't want to play Calgary. As, so, as Daryl Sutter color, colorfully said today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Oh my goodness. Uh, he 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 he, ex- he described being in a wild card spot as a as a date to get, um, you know, and I, I can't even say the word here, but bleep, uh, kicked by the Avalanche. Now, granted, he's playing some straight up Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain mental warfare. Oh yeah. With the Avalanche and trying to make them feel like front runners, but he also is not wrong. He is not wrong. No, he's absolutely not wrong. So there is something for St. Louis to play for, right? To make sure they they get back in front of Nashville and try to lock down that third spot in the Central so they don't have to be the wild card team and go uh, play Calgary in a, in the playoffs, in the first round of the playoffs. So it's it's certainly lesser stakes, but it's not no stakes for the St. for the St. Louis Blues tonight. And again, just kind of looking at how the Canucks schedule sets up a little bit. You know, it's one thing to really get up and find that level of desperation when it's a team you're chasing in the standings, right? And so, you know, hey, they have a couple against Vegas and then uh, another one the following week. So I understand that you can bring that intensity for those games because you look at the standings and you just say, yeah, directly, this is a team we need to catch. But you also have to avoid the letdown games, right? When you do play Arizona on the second half of a back-to-back, when you do play San Jose after that, you got another game against Arizona. Like, you have to avoid those trap games. And... We've seen from the Canucks several times already this year that when sometimes in the games where everyone expects, okay, hey, we can chalk up those two points, they're not able to bring that intensity. So that's the thing. It's you. You really look at it as you almost have to go like eight wins in a row here, right? Until the next time they play Dallas a, a few weeks into April to to really put themselves back in it to give themselves a chance here. And then with Dallas, you know, it's not just that their schedule this week sets up favorably. Like they have Anaheim, San Jose, Seattle this week. After that, they still have games against the Islanders, the Devils, the Blackhawks, the Sharks again, <laughs> Seattle again, Arizona again, Anaheim again. Like, they don't have to beat 
Dallas could go the rest of the season without beating a good team and coast into the playoffs. Totally. If they take care of business against the bad teams. Well, and Miro Heiskanen getting back is massive for them. And so long as they leave their Peterson in the net, <laughs> or sorry, not in the net, on the ice, um, he. I mean, that game, that game-winning goal last night was scintillating. The fact is, right, let's, let's zoom out a little. Let's zoom out a little and talk about the big picture, right? Because the problem is for this team is that they are they are mathematically still alive. There is still a chance here, but it is a slim one. And you know, for for good reason, when when you start to have these conversations in your local market, it means your team's almost you know, not almost surely, but very likely to miss the playoffs. You're hanging on by a thread. And we all know that. It's, everyone everyone it's very on the same rare page, that this the, that these conversations result in the miracle run that everyone's yeah. you know still hoping for in this market. Certainly everyone in the organization is still hoping for. And yet, you know, I think the Canucks did the right thing at the deadline to monetize Tyler Mott, right? To uh get off of some cap space with, with Travis Hamanick to look ahead a little bit. They had to do it. And and I think the way that this road trip has played out has sort of shown you why, right? They play really well. They get five of eight points, and you come home, and you're in the exact same spot you were when you headed out on that road trip, which is, you know, a one in ten shot at a playoff berth. And so, as we think about this in the big picture, I, I think we saw some things on that road trip that speak to some of the construction issues that we've been hammering home all season. Um, you know, and and <laughs> hammering home to a less and less receptive audience as the Canucks reeled off months worth of of excellent result hockey under Bruce Boudreau. But I think when you look at that road trip and you consider that Quinn Hughes and and Luke Shen played top four minutes for this team and were outscored three to one, right? When you look at the fact that the bottom four was outscored or bottom six was outscored three to one and, you know, really, I think, looked out of their depth against a Blues team with, with, you know, more credible depth. And the Blues aren't even a contender. I, I think when you consider all of that and think about it, the gulf that this team still needs to close with the best teams in the West is massive. Massive. And, you know, even though they're getting an extra million in cap space, according to NHL projections, although <laughs> use NHL projections at the at the GM's meeting with a grain of salt, right? All it takes is one new variant in the playoffs to, to change that enti- upset that entire apple cart. Uh, one fluctuation in currency, which could absolutely happen in a world where inflation is everywhere, right? Impacting the price of peppers that I'm buying at the grocery store. So, you know, take that with the massivest, like I've never seen a projection. I've never seen a cap projection that I rolled my eyes at more, except for the 88 million that came two weeks before, before the pandemic. Yes, before the pandemic. Yeah. And I wrote it at the time. I was like, you know, no team is going to change how they're budgeting because there's possible revenues. <laughs> and at the time, I just thought teams would play in close buildings maybe for a bit, not that we'd have our way of life interfered right. with for two and a half years. But, um, you know, this, like, you got to take that with a grain of salt. Nonetheless, very little cap space, a ton of a ton of space to close in the short term with the teams ahead of them in the Pacific, but also in the long term with the talent that's going to be coming down the line in Southern California for both Anaheim and L.A. You have to be prepared to make really hard judgment calls about what you've seen here. And and what you've seen here is obviously a team that's played spectacular hockey and you've gotten an opportunity to evaluate these players in, in different environments and environments where there's high stakes and that's extremely useful for a new management group. But 
if you just tweak around the edges of this team, like are you going you're not going to have even with the 16ish million in cap space that we're looking at, you're not going to have the ability to upgrade the defense core so that you don't have Luke Shen or Tucker Pullman or Kyle Burrows or Brad Hunt all or or Travis Dermott. All good pieces by the way. All useful players. All super useful depth players. You you know to, to, uh, you need to find. You need to push them down the lineup. You need push to push them, them down, down the, down the chart. And honestly, you need to push Tyler Myers down the lineup. You need to get him on your second pair. You need to push Luke Shen down the lineup. You need to get him on your third pair. Uh, you need to push multiple players down the lineup. You know, so that you have real talent in your in your bottom six. There's still so much work to be done, and and the fact that this team is facing such steep odds, despite how well they've played all year, uh, under Brudrow anyway. I think speaks to, you know, the, the the popular takeaway might be, well, if only they'd started the season better, they'd be fine. And I understand that. But I still think you're looking at a team that's, you know, pretty clearly um, failed to be as consistent as they needed to, even with all of the good stuff they've done, uh, you know, while while going on this run to close the gap and give themselves something of a realistic shot late. And and so you have to be clear-eyed about that, too, in charting a future direction for this franchise. It's a good point. There have been opportunities recently beyond just the start of the season to make this playoff chase more real, right? And obviously the seven-game homestand recently is the most obvious one, but even before that there were opportunities, right, to, hey, that the game they ended up getting blown out against Anaheim here at home. Like, that one stands out as well. It's not just the start of the season that was a missed opportunity. There's been other missed opportunities recently as well, which needs to be factored in. Throughout the month of February and January, too, where you were playing 500 hockey for – a month and a half, right? I mean, this team's done commendable work. Uh, they've gotten really hot twice, right? Right at the start of Bruce Boudreaux's tenure, and then again in sort of late February, early March. And yet, here we are. They can afford three losses max the rest of the way, and they've got a run of tough opponents over the next five. I mean, they're going to have to go on a Boudreaux in December type run here with, with a bottom six that's depleted. Um, you know, in a defense core that remains as it was to open the season. Not good enough. Uh, looking at tonight's game, the bottom six to me is one of the obvious they need more out of them than they got on Monday against St. Louis because of the way the Blues set up. And as you said, not a contender, but their strength is undoubtedly the depth they have at forward. Now, realistically, I mean, with what the Canucks are working with in their bottom six because of Tyler Mott's departure, because of injuries to Dickinson, Highmore, uh, Niels Hoaglander as well. I don't know how much more there is to get out of the bottom six, but that was a clear, a clear. There was a clear gulf in between what the Blues could do with that group versus what the Canucks could do. So that's something that needs to change for the Canucks tonight if they want to flip the result from how it was in St. Louis. It was interesting to note, first of all, no lineup changes for the Canucks except that Demko will get the start, uh, which is no surprise. That's how Boudreaux basically said it would go, that Halak would get one against the Blues, Demko would get the other. So no surprise there. Jason Dickinson, Tucker Pullman, Kyle Burrows all took the game day skate. According to Bruce Boudreaux, he hopes that all will be eligible for the game against Vegas. That's not official, but he was he said he was hopeful that they'd at least be an option against Vegas. Whether or not any of them actually get into the lineup in that game remains to be seen. Uh, Matthew Highmore continues to be out week to week. And the one that, that caught my attention was that Niels Hoaglander, the, the term, uh, the words Boudreaux used was week to week and long term. 
And when asked if he could potentially even be done for the season, Boudreaux didn't shoot that down. So it is possible that we've seen, you know, at this point, we're less than a month away from the end of the regular season. It is possible that we've seen the last of Niels Hoaglander for the year. And that that's a tough one because as we talk about adding depth and, and pushing other players down the depth chart and all of that and finding cheap contributors as well, you know, Niels Hoaglander is a player that a lot of people hoped coming into the season would check a lot of those boxes, right? Would add that cheap depth, would add, a, you know, a, a top six upside that you could play on your third line at a good price still on his ELC. We know it hasn't been the smoothest sailing for Niels Hoaglander this year, especially with Bruce Boudreaux. There's been scratches. There's been commentary about his defensive game and all of that. Now, a lot of the underlying numbers still look pretty good for Hoaglander, but you would really like, I think just from an organizational perspective, to have as much information as possible about Niels Hoaglander and where he fits into your plans going into this summer and as much confidence that, you know, he's fully healthy. He's going to get that healthy summer to come in, to, to work on the things uh, that you have questions about in his game and come in ready to go. And I, look, this is obviously a very surmountable problem for Niels Hoaglander. But again, as the team looks to acquire as much kind of cheap depth talent as possible, any extra degree of uncertainty about that player, that's a blow to what they're going to try to do going into next season's training camp, Transfer. No question. And especially because Niels Hoaglander did not play his best hockey, right, in the first bit of Boudreaux's time here. In fact, leading up to his injury, his minutes were way down. So, you know, the fact that his last impression going into a vital offseason for this club, where he's one of the club's most marketable assets in terms of uh, being a trade ship, the fact that his final impression wasn't wholly positive, you know, I think makes his situation a very difficult one for us to handicap and a very difficult one for Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford to navigate as they figure out you know, on a whiteboard, exactly what they want this team to look like it, next season and beyond. It does, even if you thought maybe they want to explore trading Niels Hoaglander, this kind of, the, the bumpy road he's had, to me, it almost pushes him more into the, we'll hold him and see what he does for his value next year, rather than explore trade this offseason, right? Because obviously, at a fundamental level, you don't want to trade players when they're at a low ebb of their value, right? And with, and with the way he's played, he's been in and out of the lineup, now he's injured, if you try to trade Niels Hoaglander at the draft, you're trading him at the low ebb of his value. So I, I just wonder... Hmm? One would think. Yeah, you would think. Anyway, so I, I do just wonder that even if even if the new brass doesn't see him as a long-term fit, if it becomes a situation where, you know what, we got to get him healthy, we got to put him in a position to succeed here, build up a little bit of, of that value, and then maybe we can see what's out there in terms of trade rather than uh, trying to offload him when, you know, there there are some legitimate questions about his value around the league at this point. Uh, lots more to come. 650-650 is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. Good, good questions coming in now. Uh, keep them coming. We'll get to as many as we can on the other side. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating and review. We will continue to set up the game against the St. Louis Blues. Plus, we will hear... From Yannick Hansen, who was on the People's Show with Bick and Randeep yesterday. Lots more coming up on the Canucks Hour on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. A dumb decisions model. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Another game day for the Canucks against a familiar opponent, second of a home-and-home series 
against the St. Louis Blues coming up tonight. Of course, you'll hear full game day coverage and the broadcast right here on Sportsnet 650. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Get your text in as well, 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. So, Drancer, one of the players, and we talked about him at a little bit of length yesterday on the show, but one of the players who's going to be in the spotlight to a degree tonight is Connor Garland. And, as we know, did not have a particularly strong game when these two teams met on Monday, had a a very high-profile turnover that led to a goal against, and then... Bruce Boudreau had some very uh, honest criticism to make of Connor Garland's game as well after the uh, after that performance in St. Louis. So all eyes are going to be on Garland to see how he bounces back. And it was interesting to hear him speak to the media and get his perspective on all of that as well after morning skate today. It was. He, you know, insisted that he's not thinking about the lack of goal scoring. But when you're a guy like Connor Garland, and as he said, he's never gone through this before, uh, in his career, you know, there's no way it doesn't wear on you. Now, I think Connor Garland's played really well for most of the stretch where he's been, you know, unable to buy a bounce. But he spotlighted some key misses, you know, misses that you wouldn't have even come to mind for me, that he looks at as misses that change the outcome of games for the Canucks. Key breakaways against teams like the Detroit Red Wings yeah. and that shutout loss against the Buffalo Sabres late that would have won the game. So, you know, the fact that he's got an index of missed chances suggests that he's thinking about it, but he he wasn't going to cop to that, right? He wasn't going to cop to that today. And, you know, I I thought overall he sounded a little bit defensive today, which, fair enough, I understand. Not only has he never gone through this before in his career, but he's never gone through this before in a market like Vancouver, where the attention ratchets up. Now, Boudreaux was critical of his game, but he's throwing him right back out there on that line with JT Miller. That line was really good on the road trip. Like, I thought that line was Vancouver's best, even though they got dinged on the Tarasenko goal uh, that sort of held up, not as the game winner, but the game sealer anyway, in St. Louis. I thought their defensive game, their two-way form was through the roof. And I I really thought Garland himself played really well on that road trip with the exception of that St. Louis game where I thought after the giveaway he was pressing a little bit, maybe, maybe a bit in his own head. And I was curious to hear him discuss it, but he really wasn't willing to open up or or entertain the conversation at length today. And it reminded me of something that I heard yesterday on the radio from Yannick Hansen, the great truth teller. The great truth teller of the Vancouver market was talking about the different experience between playing in a U.S. and a Canadian market. Uh, Let's roll the tape, actually, because I thought Hansen's insight into it was interesting. And I've got some thoughts that I want to that I want to annotate. Um, not not just in the context of Garland, but in the context of Hansen's experience playing and then being media in this marketplace. Media in the states are um, they're, uh, they're 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 backclappers, or what do you say? Like they they travel with the team, they're they're buddies with the players. They pick the the, the good articles. Like I always bring up the same example when when people ask me um, our 2010-11 team media would come into the dressing room and we were winning a ton of games this year, but they would go in and they say, okay, Samuelson, you haven't scored for four games. Why haven't you scored? Uh, what, what's wrong? Um, and then they would come the next day, they would come to, to Bur- or you were minus two the other day. What, what, what went wrong? Instead of picking on, oh, hang on, Danny, they had four points and we won the game. Um, so they would always try for the negative where in, in San Jose, opposite side, 
um, they'd come in and they'd say, okay, Kevin LeBanc, you're having a hell of a season and you just scored two goals and had an assist. Well, we lost 5-3 last night, but that's not what the article is about. That's not what the newspaper. So that's where it, it's, it's, it's turned a little bit in the Canadian market where the, the negativity gets, gets brought up a lot more. Um, I don't know for, like we were always thinking, oh, it sells articles, uh, clicks or whatever it, it was back then. Um, but but it is uh, it is polar oppositing in the way it's reported U.S. and Canadian. That was Yannick Hansen yesterday on the People Show. Of course, you can hear Yannick every Tuesday on the People Show Friday on Canucks Central, talking about in his experience the differences between uh, how teams are covered in Canada and in an American market. Yeah, and so a couple of things to identify here. One is you know what he's talking about, where media travel with the team. Uh, the backslapping thing. There's a there's a meaningful distinction in independence between media, hockey media in Canada, and hockey media in the states, and it even extends to the broadcasters. In the United States, the broadcasters, the people who call the game, are direct team employees. In Canada, John Shorthouse and and John Garrett are legitimately Sportsnet employees. There, there's obviously a rights holder relationship there, but they are distinct from the people who call the games and and as you can expect that results in in a very different tone of coverage and you know even though even though obviously Garrett and and, and Shorthouse aren't out carving <laughs> the players on a regular basis that's no, not but even, that's like, not the job but but like Murph will come on and be critical directly critical 100%. he's it, fair but it's it's willing to be critical and I'll tell you Drancer even just as you know I I produced I still produce shows here on 650 and I reach out to a lot of people about other teams and I you know I'll reach out to a broadcaster for an American team and they'll say listen I I'm a team employee I don't really feel comfortable talking mm-hmm. about x y and z right? right and that 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 dynamic 100% exists in a way it doesn't here it's in very real and so I think that's the main the main part there's another part too which is that selling the team the retail element of the media experience when you're in a non-traditional hockey market is way higher than it is here the Canucks sell themselves. They are the only show in town. The Maple Leafs sell themselves. Um, go across Canada, right? Those are the big dog professional sports teams in every market they're in, right? The Maple Leafs are bigger than God in a market that also has an NBA and an MLB team. Um, so, you know, <laughs> bigger than religion, the Toronto Maple Leafs in Ontario. Bigger than religion, the Vancouver Canucks in Vancouver. It's very different in the United States where, you know, Ticket buying, for example, picks up after bowl season. Like when I when I used to work in Florida, you can hit the ding if you want, Faber. You know, I'd always say like the way the NHL standings look after bowl season will determine you know how good attendance is the rest of the the way. That used to be sort of my rule of thumb for for how hard we had to work to just fill the building. And as a result of that, and because you don't have the same level of experience among media members, right? Teams are able to pitch, hey, this guy's having a great, like, this This guy has to be a story, you know, this is what he's doing, and that sort of leads to how reporters tell the story, too, because you don't have the same level of detailed, you know, full-time, uh, completely obsessive, uh, hockey, full-time hockey media people, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's guys in the States, media guys in the States, who can, you know, to a very detailed extent break down the cornerback battle for you know the Miami Dolphins or the uh you know I, I was gonna say LA Rams but LA is sort of a, a an odd media market you know something like I'm trying to think of a, a 
the Pittsburgh Steelers. Sure. Right? But there's not as many people who are dedicated fully to hockey and are going to break down and handicap, like, the roster battle for the fourth-line left wing spot going into training camp the way that we do. And it's not that there's a market for negativity in this in this, um, in this this place, in Vancouver. I think there's a market for detail. There's a market to treat the Canucks like they absolutely matter. And, and where Vancouver is a little bit distinct, I think, from the other Canadian markets, too, is I don't think the media culture around the team is as deferential in Vancouver as it tends to be in the other markets. I think there's a skepticism about the NHL. I think there's a skepticism about, like, old hockey saws. Everything from does toughness matter uh, on and on down the line. And I think the way that this team was covered in 2011, I think it was negative locally until late when the national media started carving the team and the local media started standing up for it, right? I mean, there was a distinct shift as you went late in the playoffs um, the last thing is the the poking at negativity thing that Hansen references. I think we live in a very different media world than the one that existed in 1011, right? Back in those days, there were like three or four reporters from each paper. We don't even have multiple papers yeah. now. We just have Post Media, and there's two two guys, Ben Kuzma and, and Patrick Johnston. Uh, we have The Athletic, we have Me and Harm, we have the radio station. We only have one now in 650. Um, so, you know, the volume of bodies that players are interacting with is lower the amount of media obligations particularly now that locker rooms aren't opening up is a lot lower and i do think that the shift in priorities and the deeper understanding that we have in this market in particular about things like the cap about things like advanced stats like i don't know if you remember 1011 but when edler went on ir no one understood that they were really the first team that was pulling the kucherov yes. cane that was not the coverage at the time. No, but it wasn't Sammy Salo activated like the, literally that day or literally the next day. The next yeah. day. So, but, but but people didn't quite get no. that. You yeah. know what I mean? It took months before people understood that, oh, because Edler went on IR, they were able to activate Salo and add Higgins and LaPierre. It was sort of a dawning realization as opposed to a front of mind thing that was then going to be discussed at GM meetings. Um, so, you know. The, the change is so dramatic. And I do think that now, if you had an elite team in Vancouver, I think the focus would be far different in terms of dinging a skilled player for not scoring in four games. Now now people would be like, yeah, but if you look at the underlying sure. numbers, like his shooting percentage is just a little bit off, and he's still a really valuable contributor on the power play. And look, he's got a 4% IPP. Like, <laughs> there's nothing wrong there. That That type of discussion around the team didn't exist. And honestly, it was a big part of why I started covering the team back in the day. Like, that was the team, you know, before I was a media guy that, that captured my imagination as a fan. And one thing that always bothered me was the way that narratives around the team would change day to day, uh, especially in the playoffs. And and I remember that that the final where it was like Vancouver wins the first two games. Everyone's like, it's over. And I'm and I, I'm watching. Plan the up, parade. And I'm like, oh, man, they won two games by one goal. Yes. You in, know, one in, in overtime, one in, overtime, one one in, in the, the last seconds. seven seconds. Yeah. Like, I don't know. This, this series is not unfolding the way that I was hoping as a Canucks fan. And then the Canucks get crushed in Boston in two straight. And everyone's like, well, it's over. And I was like, eh. You know, like, I don't know that that's the case. I don't believe in game-to-game momentum. I think it's very conceivable. In fact, I think Vancouver should still be favored in this series. They come back, they win game five. Well, now it's over again. And it was just this, like, (laughs) switch. And it was like, no, this is a really closely contested series that could go either way. I I, I wanted a more consistent type of coverage. That was a big reason that I got into covering this team. 
uh, back in the day, like at the start of my career, was that I wanted to read that type of coverage. I think that now, if you had an elite team, you'd see people, you know, be like, this is what this team can do. This is why they're good. I think there'd be a lot more focus on explaining what was going right and, and like, how good are they? The evergreen topic that we discuss every day on this show. Uh, honestly, it's the space how, that I feel like I live in. Is how, do, how, how good do, is this team? How do they compare to the uh, the 2011 team? That, the next time the Canucks have a really good team, that's going to be a hot topic. <laughs> that's going to be a hot topic. And it's going to be an unfair comparison because that's one of the top five yeah. regular season teams the last of the cap era, frankly, right? I mean, and then and then you know the only the only thing that you can do that's better than what that team did is win the final game. Yeah, that's it. Like, so it's always going to be an unfair comparison. I just think that the tone around the next elite team in this market is going to be wildly, wildly different. And and Connor Garland facing the media basically for the first time in weeks, having having gone, I think it's 16 games without a goal, uh, for me is very different from what Yannick Hansen described in general. And um, and and that all of that said, I do think he's n- absolutely hitting the nail on the head in terms of the difference between U.S. Well, and Canadian. The other thing that the sport that really, and I was obviously listening yesterday, you know, producing the show. But the other thing that really struck me about what Yannick Hansen had to say there is, it would be very easy to take that clip from Yannick Hansen and twist it into a uh, players hate playing in Canada because of the negative media quote. But if you listen to what he's saying there. He's not saying, oh, it was so great in the U.S. because all they did was focus on the positive. Like, there's an element of that was kind of bad, too, into into what he's saying there, right? Like, oh, they were just they would just pat you on the back no matter what you did. It doesn't, to me, and if you've heard Yannick speak uh, other times about his experience in San Jose, you know it was not necessarily a very positive experience for him. And so I thought that was interesting. It wasn't him saying, oh, it was so great in the U.S. and so bad in Canada. It was almost you know, elucidating kind of annoying factors in both places, right? And so that that it's always very easy to say, oh, like the players will hate the media coverage in Canada, and obviously some of them will, right? Some of them will hate having to deal with that level of pressure. Of course they will, or, or scrutiny being applied to them. There's no doubt about that. But I think there are other players like Yannick Hansen who would kind of roll their eyes at the other end of the spectrum, right? At the, at the uh, oh, hey, you guys lost 4-2 today, but let's go find the guy that had a goal and an assist and talk about how great he was. Like, it's not as binary black and white as I think we sometimes make it out to be where players hate the experience of being covered in Canada and love it in the U.S. I think there are lots of players that fall into different camps in that regard, right? Well, let me give you an example on this team currently. Oliver ekman Larson drove the bus to come here from a non-traditional hockey market with very little scrutiny. And this season he's, you know, been available whenever whenever he's been asked for and is is actually available to be to be made available. I think he's done a really good job handling the media when called upon. I think he's been very level-headed after losses. I think his emotional intelligence is through the roof and I think it's evident every time I've chatted with him, uh, both in a scrum setting or or one-on-one. Now, Part of what Ekman Larson wanted was to come to a market where every game was life and death. And I think if you asked him, I don't think this, I'm telling you this, if you asked Ekman Larson about the closed rooms, about the fact that there isn't this, you know, rush of bodies into the locker room and microphones to face every day, that's the show. That's the show he mm-hmm. wanted to be part of. That's the high-intensity full pressure hockey experience that he felt like he hadn't had before in his career and that caused him to want to come to play in a market like Vancouver or Boston and quite directly drive the bus to be here. And and so it's not about 
players won't want to sign in in a high intensity media market. Although very truly, some of them won't. Yes, some of them won't, um, and that's fine. Part of your challenge that you have to embrace, that you have to embrace and take advantage of, as in any NHL team in whatever market you're in, is understanding your unique positioning relative to the rest of the league and identifying players who do want it. Identifying your Ekman Larsons. Identifying players who, like the Sedin Twins, can block out the pressure. Um, Getting the most from players, despite the fact that in a negative or a more negative media market, certainly a more critical media market, it can and does have an impact on individuals within that. You need to make sure that impact is limited or, or is positive to the best of your abilities and that you know might not always be the case you might not always be able to control it but it's no different honestly it's the other side of the coin of playing in an empty building night Mm -hmm. after night which by the way is not good for team performance either and has its own drawbacks and requires its own unique evaluation in terms of finding the types of people that can still excel in an environment in which it's very easy to hide and be anonymous for your and not accountable for your performance. I know we've heard from former players, Jancer, and I'm sure you've talked to former players about this as well, who make the transition from a Canadian market or a, an extremely intense, high-pressure American market to mm-hmm. a non-traditional hockey market, and there's a bit of a the grass is always greener effect, right? Because maybe you're worn down by the constant scrutiny in Canada, but then you get to Anaheim, Arizona, wherever, and... You know, you're like, ah, actually, you know what? Like, <laughs> maybe it would have been better. Where somewhere where people really care about this team. And you know, I look at just look at the players. Some of the players on this team. Do you think J T. Miller wants to play in a half empty building where you know it's the, they're the fourth most popular no, he professional feeds team? Off the, he feeds no off way. the show. Yeah, no way he, he wants to do that, yeah. right? And plus, everyone would hear him cursing. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I remember my last season in Florida. Uh, we acquired Mike Hoffman and Troy Brower, um, and. Hoffman and Brower were coming from Calgary and Ottawa, respectively, where their media obligations were through the roof. Uh, you know, Brower had been roundly criticized the year before he got bought out for his performance. Hoffman had been at the center of a really yes. interesting controversy that had captured a ton of headlines in Ottawa. And, you know, occasionally players would roll their eyes when you're making asks, or you got to do this, or, oh, you know, you get the thing. Of course. And you don't you don't accept it. You're, you're a lion tamer. You just sort of remind them that, you know they've got a they've got a foursome uh, golf outing booked in a few days, and that you set it up, and that they best not test you, and they uh, and they go and do it, and um, all of a sudden guys would complain around Hoffman or, or Brower, and they'd be like, "You do nothing, you do nothing, stop it." And it was just such a useful thing for me, right? Like I'd literally wait to make an ask that was more annoying until one of them was in earshot, knowing like the players knew that if they complained around Brower. He'd get on them. And so I I legitimately, like, would wait. I would, like, wait for him to be within earshot before making the ask, stuff like that. Uh, you know, the fact is, is that it's all about perspective. And, and players in different situations handle it differently. There is no question that this media market can be a challenging one for players, and it can be an impossible one for the wrong type of personality. And, you know, I don't think that's something that you need to accept as fate and and accept as a negative all the time 
It's something that can be a positive yes. if you identify the right personalities. And I think an underrated part of that 10-11 team, like look up and down the ra- roster. Do you think Sammy Salo ever cared right. when he was criticized? Do you think Ma- Mikhail Samuelson did? Yeah. You had guys like Kevin Bieksa who loved it. Who embraced I rem- it. I remember, Kessler. Yeah. I remember the first time I came into a Canucks, in the, into the Canucks locker room as a reporter, Kevin Bieksa picked me out, picked me out, walked over to me, and was like, who are you? <laughs> And he was just testing me, and I was just like, ah, da, da, I explained who I was, and he was like, okay, and he just walked away. But it was like, BXA excelled in that environment, right? He knew that he could keep people off balance, that he'd, he'd read the room. He wanted to know who he was talking to, and now you see him be a great media guy. And, you know, not a surprise, not a no. coincidence. He was the right type of person to excel in this environment. Um, and then there were some other guys, you know, I, I'd probably uh, point out a guy like David Booth, who maybe weren't as uh, who weren't savvy enough to it, and were never going to be at their best in in a spot like this relative to what they'd accomplished earlier in their career in Florida. And what I always come back to, and it's something we've heard kind of indirectly, but from Bruce Boudreaux and Jim Rutherford both when they took over uh, in their respective roles for the Canucks, is yes, the scrutiny and the pressure is higher in Canada, especially in a market like Vancouver, but the potential rewards are very much higher as well, right? And that that's always something to keep in mind, whether it's from a coach's perspective or a player's perspective. If you are eventually part of the team that brings a Stanley Cup yeah. to Vancouver, <laughs> the potential that, that reward is greater than what you can get in almost any other market. Yeah, just open up a sports bar in North Van and, and trade off your name Call for it the day. next... <laughs> trade off your name for the next 20 years. I mean, you know, there's... Uh, there's an awful lot of opportunities and an awful lot of benefits that accrue to players that crush it in this market, and those are not similar to the rewards that accumulate to players who crush it elsewhere. No. No question. All right, that's going to do it for us today. It is a Canucks game day, of course. They take on the St. Louis Blues at 7 at Rogers Arena. Keep it locked here for all of your game day coverage. The People Show, Bick Nazar, Randy Janda is up next on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.